You are listening to a message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. For more information on City Church, or for additional resources, including service times, recommended readings, and additional audio, please visit citychurchpa.org. Uh, I want to welcome you this morning and thank you so much for being here uh, and worshiping with us uh, and exalting the Lord together. Uh, if you do not know me, my name is Raphael and I'm one of the pastors here uh, and, and it is an honor to serve uh, the Lord here. Uh, and I want to just also just be uh, one of the people. Uh, we're probably going to clap our hands and we're going uh, to clap our hands to this. Happy ninth anniversary, City Church. Um, um, so this last year has been just um, incredibly just amazing in watching God being uh, faithful and continuing to, uh, to change, to unite us, and to send us every week. I say that, those things because uh, when we're saying change, that, uh, that really just stands for our, our, our core value of gospel, uh, that we're only changed by Jesus, uh, but then he makes us into a community, uh, a community uh, that is united by Jesus, and then he also sends us uh, on mission, and that's actually like another core value. So, um, and we We've seen God extending his glory by making disciples uh, through the gospel. Um, you know, in each and every enterprise, business, or whatever you, uh, you, you, you may actually be familiar with, uh, our bottom line is people. Our bottom line is lives being changed. And so, um, you know, just kind of reminiscing and just looking back, uh, we just have seen God uh, just transform people's lives uh, through the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel every single week here. Um, and it's been amazing to watch uh, just like some of you uh, just like really rise up and actually God has even uh, helped, uh, has, has helped us even as leaders uh, through some of uh, even just like your initiatives and in making discipleship happen uh, here at City Church, uh, whether it's watching uh, new parents dedicating and, and committing to shepherding their children, uh, seeing it in baptisms, uh, seeing in classes and groups uh, that are going on here at City Church, uh, new members joining in, uh, and then also just new mission initiatives uh, are just launched here at City Church. And we've also just like been really just uh, aggressive also in, in making sure that the gospel is actually spread, is planted also, demonstrated in our community. So we've partnered with a lot of uh, local organizations, and then also globally we've been uh, we, we've partnered to actually just really plant some churches. And so, um, so which has really just been an amazing uh, thing. And um, uh, let me just kind of give you a recap of uh, two, um, for two, uh, two weeks I was, I was in Africa. And I really just like, uh, I want to say thank you so much to uh, some of you that really just like um, contributed to, uh, on, my, on my 40th birthday, uh, I was surprised with a trip uh, with a trip home, and uh, and I want to tell you that was probably one of the greatest blessings uh, for me. 
Um, so thank you so much. And not only that, uh, some of the things that like you, some of the contributions that were made for that were uh, just really just, it was a blessing for me to be home, uh, get to see uh, my family. Um, and uh, let me just show you a few pictures of what uh, some of the things that, my, that happened there. Uh, so I got to preach uh, at one of the churches. This is Renewal Church. Uh, we have supported them from ground zero. Uh, and so got to be in that room and got to hear people singing uh, in Zulu, in Debele Sutu, and got to say, this is what we're all about. We are contributing in that whole great multitude of people standing before the throne of God. And so it was just an honor to be there. Uh, there's a picture of me and Sile and his, and his wife. They are eternally grateful to you and, and the way that you've supported them, uh, that, that we've supported them as a church. Uh, we, give, uh, we give at least a good percentage of what we get towards establishing churches like this. And we've done that in South Africa, Guatemala. And, uh, and, and I got to also just, this was my childhood home. Uh, my childhood home, uh, where I was trained. Um, this is where I started. When I said, hey, I need to, I feel called to, to do ministry. Uh, my pastor made me clean toilets here. Uh, my pastor made me do children's church here, uh, preach to the homeless, serve, work in the bookstore, work in the reception, be an errand boy, uh, and, do, and work with youth ministry, and sing in the choir, sing in the worship team, play instruments, and do all that. And it was just an honor as well to just be there and be welcomed there and just uh, uh, and just a lot of people were like saying, hey, we're keeping up with what's happening at City Church. Uh, just may God continue to establish the work there. Um, and while I was there, uh, we got to dedicate um, three tombstones, and which is really, if you know my story, just uh, one of the things that really just was, uh, uh, was, was very near and dear is, is I, I lost a lot of family members. And um, so we dedicated my father's grave, and that was uh, also my I think it's my sister's and then also my, uh, my mother's uh, the tombstones. And, and just really doing that. Um, and, and part of that is actually for, uh, for even just maybe just to put everything in context. Uh, all that green that's behind there, uh, it's people's graves. And so some of them are caved in, some of them, and, and for us, as a sign of honor, we have to take care of those things. And that was eating me up while I was here. And just felt really just like, and, and just doing that was very restorative to my own heart. And not only that, uh, just the honor in my family as well. So uh, thank you so much for that. Um, I really, really appreciate that. Anyway. Now, let's jump into uh, the book of Nehemiah, uh, the book of Nehemiah. This morning, we are going uh, into the book of Nehemiah. Uh, one of the things that we're going to be getting to see is really we're looking at a, uh, a story of God rebuilding, rebuilding, and, and today's title will be, will, will be A Broken Remnant and a Faithful God, A Broken Remnant and a Faithful God. And so, let me just give you an overview of this book uh, an overview of this book, um, 
And so this is all about the this is all about rebuilding and reforming uh, in, in in after exile in Judah um, and and in the first fifth century BC. And so this is like where we've seen like if you kind of like follow the story of the Bible, you will see when the kings, uh, when King David, uh, God chooses King David, sets him up as a man after his own heart. Uh, but he is actually the kings that follow after him. Uh, they, they fail, uh, really just pointing towards the greater son of David, Jesus. The kings fail, the kingdom is divided to into two, Israel and Judah. And during that time, that's when the prophets are actually writing. And during that time, this is the time also where we get to see uh, the book of Nehemiah and Ezra actually written. Uh, we, if, if you follow, you will get to see that like, first of all, uh, God uses just to send his people in exile as a way to just kind of like uh, tune their hearts back towards himself. He sends them in exile through, uh, first of all, Assyria, uh, and then Babylon comes in. Uh, Assyria comes in 612 BC, uh, conquers them, and then Babylon gains control over them, uh, and that's where we find the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, um, and then uh, in 605 to 562, and then 539, that's when the Persian kingdom through Cyrus comes and defeats Babylon, and and through all that, Israel and Judah are just being caught up in all that, and they're being taken as as in, into exile. Um, that's where, during the time when the Persian kingdom, that's where at least the book of Esther is actually written um when King Xerxes uh, is is ruling 486 to 4665 BC, and then uh, and then after that we see uh, King Artaxerxes uh, ruling as well in 458 to 430. Uh, during when Xerxes is ruling, that's when that's when uh, Cyrus uh, Cyrus is king, and he sends people back to rebuild uh, to rebuild Jerusalem, and that's actually when the time of Ezra when they are rebuilding building the temple and all that. And then right after that, the time of actually building gets stopped. And then right after that, that's when, uh, that's when Nehemiah comes in. The temple stands, but actually the, the gates of the city and the walls and everything are actually in ruins. And so um, this is actually what we get to see. Uh, we get to see... Um, Ezra successfully building the temple, and then now we, we get to see Nehemiah being called uh, to actually to call people to the commitment of actually making sure Israel is actually secure. Um, and then so here's actually our gospel emphasis here. Uh, is that similar to Nehemiah, Christ builds his church today in the midst of adversity. Christ is building his church, uh, and by church, I mean you. By church, I mean you and I, and church as in local church and church as in universal church. Christ is building, and but what he does is that he empowers his people to call labor with him. And so this is what I, my prayer and my hope and our hope even as we teach through this book is that we, we, we hope as we faithfully labor uh, before God and in partnership with him in building his church and restoring lives that we hope to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servants because that's what he calls us to do. Amen. 
And so go with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. And it says this, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, the 20th year of, of Artaxerxes' uh, reign, and when I was in the fortress city of Susa, that is the capital, uh, the capital of the Persian kingdom at that time, Hanani, one of my brothers, one of my brothers arrived with men from Judah. Uh, he's bringing them to Nehemiah uh, because they've got something to share. And, and, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And they say to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile, who are uh, I in great trouble and disgrace. If you're underlining anything, that is actually the pain point there. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. And when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before God of the heavens. And so here, what, what really we see is Nehemiah is in exile, and he weeps and he fasts and he prays upon hearing the news of the state uh, of his people uh, and, and the state of the city that he loves. Uh, and he, he, he weeps because they're facing trouble and, and disgrace. If there's one thing that I just want you to walk away with here, it's actually hinged on, on that last verse, that last piece there. I went before the God of heavens. That's really just like a picture of he goes before. Who is this God? Who is this God? He is the God of heavens. And this is, this is a, a picture of the fact that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign and that God is the one who is universally sovereign. God of heaven, we see it in verse, verse 5 as well. Uh, and we see it in 2.4. We see it in 2.20. And this was actually like, yes, in Persia, this was, a, this was a divine title. But Nehemiah uses it and he says that God is mighty. He is the only God who rules and reigns. Not, not Ahura Mazda, who is, the, who is the Persian God of that time. He's in, he's, in the, he's in the palace, but when even in that time where he's in the palace, he still looks at God, and he still sees God as the God who is sovereign. So if there's one idea that you can walk away with today that I really want to press in your heart today is that is this, God's sovereignty in, in adversity should inspire trust, not hinder it. God's sovereignty. Where is God? What is he doing? I know that this is the most, they're facing trouble. They're facing disgrace. But he still says, in the midst of all this, I hear the bad news. But I also know where God is. I hear the bad news, but I also know who God is and where he is. And then so God's sovereignty in adversity should inspire trust, not hinder it. And then so this is what we get to see here. When we go in, in here, we get to see in verse 1 here, first of all, that a high view of God's sovereignty gives comfort in the midst of, of, of suffering. 
It gives comfort towards those who are suffering. And so read verse 1 with me. It says this, like the words of Nehemiah, sign of Hekaliah. And that word, his name is Nehemiah. And that word Nehemiah simply means, actually if you were to translate it, it means God has comforted. God is comforted. God, it, it's not a coincidence that God raises up someone with a name, Nehemiah, during that. He is about to unleash his comfort towards those that are facing trouble and disgrace. And he comes in and he raises them up during that time. And this is during the, the 20th month. Uh, and he is in this, he's in a place of affluence. And God calls Nehemiah to a place where he launches him, him as actually an instrument of actually comforting his people. Nehemiah himself, he's actually introduced, if you look at verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11, he's a cupbearer to the king. And the text doesn't even ex- explain to us how he, get to, he gets to be, he gets to actually do this very thing uh, as a cupbearer. Bearer. But we know that Susa is a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. We find him at the top of his profession and he is a cupbearer, uh, which means that like this is, this is one of the most privileged places uh, in, in, that, in that time. A cupbearer made sure that the cup of the king, when the cup, and this was a region that was full of wine and all that, made sure that the, king, the king's cup was free from poison. It was free from poison. And, and, and one of the, this is one of the things that kings feared the most. They would always just like, they, were, they always had people that, were, that, that, that wanted their heads. And so therefore they would always appoint a cup bearer who would taste that wine first before they they taste the wine before they drink. And in fact, if you kind of just like follow uh, Persian history, uh, King Darius, Darius III, uh, an attempt, an assassin, uh, Bogos, uh, Bogos uh, attempted to actually uh, poison him, uh, and they found him, uh, they, they, they found him, uh, they found him, and the king ended up actually making him actually drink that poison, and he died even instantly at that time. So the office of the cupbearer was, was, was an honor one. It was usually given to young men, uh, young men of unquestionable loyalty and of trustworthiness, and 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 they 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 were trusted so much by the king. And we find Nehemiah being one of those. He has served faithfully where he is, and even in his faithfulness in serving uh, and actually living in affluence. We see him here in the distress of, Susa, of, of, of Jerusalem. And God calls him towards his sovereign purposes. And we see him calling him to actually serve. And what's interesting is that he then now goes into prayer. And we see him looking at God who is unchanging. We see him looking at God who is covenant, who's, who is covenantally faithful. And we see him looking at God. And, and, but this is what I want us to actually wrestle with when we're looking at Nehemiah. Uh, just like Esther. Esther, uh, Esther Mordecai says to, to her, you were placed here at such a time as this. Nehemiah is placed at a great time in a great place. He serves faithfully and God uses him right where he is. 
And so if we were to kind of just look at where he is placed, this is what I really just maybe even want us to just ask ourselves. As we celebrate our ninth-day anniversary today, have you wrestled with why God has you in Williamsport at this time? Have you wrestled with why God has gifted you and given you like the skills that he has given you to work where you're working and to have people around you who you have and to have family that you have? Have you asked yourself how God wants to use your positioning right now for his sovereign purposes? Because he did that with Nehemiah. He unleashed his comfort. He did that. So even for you and me, do you realize why? Do you ask yourself and re-ask yourself, why are we in this corner right here? Why are we in this corner here? Why did God bring us back to life nine years ago? Why did he breathe in and literally come and bring all of us in from every single part of the country and bring us back and build us up as city church today? Why? What are his sovereign purposes that he is calling you and I to do and to join him in? What are the high stakes that you and I, if we do not, if we close our eyes to what is happening around us and in us and through us in here, what are the high stakes that are actually that are actually gonna be that are gonna be lower if you and I don't engage in that? What are our possibilities? If you and I were to fix our eyes on the sovereign God and his power during this time in the midst of like a a place where there's so much adversity and a million things that are vying for your attention. Are you just existing in this time or are you part of God's Rebuilding work. Are you just existing? Are you a consumer? Or are you a collaborator and a contributor in his kingdom? And that's actually what we get to see. Nehemiah allows the news of what's happening to impact him. To begin to look around and to see the brokenness around. And this is actually what we get to see. A high view of God's sovereignty provokes concern about the brokenness around. This is what we get to see. It provokes concern. Provokes concern in him. Look at verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. They don't, they, 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 he, he, they don't have to. He doesn't have to. He's like, he can be all about him and himself and his own dream. We can all get sucked into American dream red race and be all about our own kingdoms and all that. And in a society of hyper-individualism, we can lose our concern. But we see him in a place like this is not like he is in a very affluent place. But he allows himself to be broken. He takes initiative. He has this highly responsible job in a secure, fine, prosperous city. If you had seen Persia during that time, magnificent buildings, spacious gardens, but here we see the initiative comes from Nehemiah. 
What's going on with, with Jerusalem? What's going on with my brothers and sisters? And we see him having concern about the welfare of the city and the returned exiles. The king had stopped, um, the king before had stopped um, the building of the wall and the gates in, in, in chapter in Ezra 4, verse 7 to 23, when the king suspected rebellion and, and, and that they will refuse to pay taxes if they get, if they get too comfortable. And here we see Nehemiah has grown in Babylon, but we see him burdened for the Lord's work. And we see him just really like embodying the psalmist uh, in Psalm 137, verse 5. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. And so we see him like with so much, he demonstrates concern. And we see him demonstrating where his priorities are. People mattered more than his own comfort. The state of people mattered more than his own affluence. Broken walls meant, broken walls meant the, the frightening, frightening insecurity. Uh, and, and it meant, it meant uh, serious economic deprivation. It meant they, they depressed people within the city. And, and they were always open to abuse and attacks. And as you will see, even in the book of Nehemiah, and we see that there was also shame involved. They, there was shame involved because for them, being the people of God and living in ruins was not a compatible idea. Saying that we worship a, a sovereign God. And so here we see him demonstrating concern and compassion. And we see that compassion actually uh, raid even Jesus' heart as well. And in, in the New Testament, when we get to see Luke 7, we see Jesus. He sees a weeping woman who has actually lost her only son, her only son, and he has compassion. He stops that funeral, raises him up from the dead. We see Jesus actually describing even the, the story of the Samaritan, uh, this man who has been marked and left for, marked and left, left for dead. And we say, he says that the good Samaritan had compassion within him. We see Jesus telling even a story of the, prodigal, of the prodigal father, the father who does the unthinkable, who accepts the son who's coming, who has squandered everything, who has caused him shame and dishonor. And we see the father bursting up with compassion. And even Jesus himself, we see him in Matthew 9 when he looks at a vast number of people looks at a vast number of people, uh, just like we see in malls, just like we see in games, just like we see when we're seeing children in soccer games and all that. He looks at them and it says he bursted with compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And that word compassion is this God reaction, this bursting with love from in within. That's what's happening with Nehemiah. Like that, that, that Jesus is actually even entering into that. That like it's not even Nehemiah only, it's Jesus. And even Jesus calls you and I not to just sit in the sidelines of what's happening within our city, what's happening within our world, what's happening within, 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 within people's lives, our neighbors, our relatives, our children, and not just sit in the sidelines, and, but really just enter in into where we get compassion for them. 
one author who's written very well on this subject, Henry Nouwen, he says this in his book, You Are Beloved, You Are the Beloved. This is Gus's favorite guy. Uh, so he just like, because he loves him, I've grown to love uh, just getting to see. This is a professor who was teaching at Yale and, and, and Harvard and all that, but he left all that to go serve uh, people who are disabled and serve them because he, he, he had that kind of Christ-like compassion. He says this, compassion challenges us to cry out with those those that I who are those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion's, compassion means a full immersion in the condition of being human. Compassion means we enter into and this is what we see in the New Testament. What, you, what I'm calling you and I, we, we have texts like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that says, for the love of God compels us into a compassionate posture. Since we have reached this conclusion that one has died and, 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 and that one has died, therefore all have died. And, and then, so, so then he died. Look at verse 15. He died so that all those who live should no longer live for themselves. That's what we see Nehemiah doing. He refuses to live for himself. He, he, he was set for all his life. With the secret service of Susa, he was set for all his life, but we see him moved. And this is what Jesus rescues us. He rescues us so that now we don't, he died. He compels us. He died so that we should not live for ourselves, but for the one who died and was raised. And if we live for him, we adopt also his heart and his compassion and his posture towards a lost, dying and hopeless world. And this is why he has taken us and he has Put us right here as City Church in 2024 to extend His glory by making disciples through His gospel. It is not to live for ourselves. It is not about us. It is about Him. He has called us to mission. And the question is that will you sit alongside Him? Will you sit in the sidelines or will you join Him in mission in doing this? Will you join Him? Will you join Him? When churches get to nine years, they get comfortable. They become about themselves and, and the colors of the carpet and the colors of the walls and all these other things. And I'm praying that God would not do that to us. I'm praying that God would continue to propel us and plant us deeply in the gospel and its power and the fact that He is sovereign and that He is calling us, you and me, to not rest until we see people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue clothed in white, washed from their sins and worshiping the only one who is worthy of all praise, Jesus the King of Kings. Amen. That is why God has placed us here. From now on, this is what Paul says from now on. Then we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. We're not duped for what they have and what they don't have and all that stuff. For, 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 for we look at them through the compassion of Jesus Christ. So my questions this morning is, are you broken and sad over situations that don't involve you directly. 
Oftentimes we're too busy even to feel the emotions of broken situations. And so therefore we don't respond. Do you have a godly jealousy? Do we have a godly jealousy for our church? Do, do we reject hyper-individualism ism, and really just say, God, would you continue to unite us? It is not about me. I'm laying down all my rights. I'm laying down my rights for this, this, and that. For the sake of the community, I want to see Jesus do more. Here's one thing that we get to see here in, in, in Nehemiah. You can't not be equally sad about everything. But you should be sad about some things. And I, I can say this to us at the risk of offending a lot of us, but this is, this is what we get to see. If you're more sad about politics and the state of God's church and the gospel, then something is out of balance. Do you see brokenness as a they problem or do you see it as a we problem? You see it as a we problem, which is why we do confessions. Sometimes it's not you, it's what's good, what you've done and what you, what you, and all those things, but it's uncomfortable to say we have sinned. But that's what we will see Nehemiah do here. He hasn't even taken part, but he says we, we, and I pray that we would adopt. What if, what if, what if the things that made you most sad about the people of God like, what if you prayed through this series, like, pray it as a we, not as a they problem. God, help them and that. No, no, God, help us. And guys, City Church is not a they elders problem. City Church is a we problem. The gospel and everything and its flourishing is a we problem. Amen? It's a, it's a we problem. It's a we problem. And so we have to seek his kingdom and seek and keep it first. Our concern should be, should, be, should, should be like Nehemiah here where we really just begin to enter into those things and then we'll begin to enter. For example, one of my heroes in missions is William Carey, uh, the father of modern missions, and he heard about those who were lost from afar and then we see him actually now, actually like as he's working as a cobbler, as he's working as a cobbler, he places uh, above his workbench the large map of the world that he had drawn with the names of the countries and their populations and begins praying for the peoples of the world. He prayed that God would make it possible for him to do something uh, about the fate of those who lived in spiritual darkness. He, he prayed, God, would you help me to be part of that? And I pray that as we look through our lives, as we look through our finances, as we look, we begin to say, God, how can I be, take everything you've called me to be that I have and use it as a tool to dissipate spiritual darkness. So we should all seek to cultivate concern and compassion 
for God's kingdom. And we do that by asking, what is the nature, nature of, the, of the church and uh, the church and, and the gospel in this city or, or in the cities that we serve? Do we have a lot of Bible-based churches? Are you praying for the shepherds of, of, of this city? Is, are you satisfied with the worship Jesus is receiving in the city, in your house, and those around you? Are there things that have provoked concern, that have just come up, and that have just become something you're super concerned about? Why are you concerned about that? Is the sovereign God moving in your heart? What's your role in actually taking part in that brokenness? But it shouldn't just stop there. And we see here that a high view of God's sovereignty amid brokenness, what it does is that it drives us near him. It drives us near him. And what we see, he says, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. So he, he just like, I, I just want you to see how he slows down. He, he doesn't, prayer is his actually reflexive response here. Nehemiah has a high view of God. Through the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see Nehemiah painting God as a God who is totally reliable, utterly holy, who's compassionate, who's merciful, and who's, who's uniquely powerful, who's infinitely gracious, who is intimately near, who's completely just. And so he then really looks towards him. And that's what it means there when he says that he looks towards the God of the heaven. In chapter 9, he says that blessed be his glorious name. He says, stand up, people. Let's praise him. He says, blessed be his glorious name. May he be exalted above all blessings and all praise. Some of us get stuck in the blessings and we get stuck in the, in the praises and we don't look at the one who is exalted above all that. And so we see Nehemiah and in the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see a man who totally is devoted to God and his plan. And this is actually a picture of also Christ, we see him, we see him delight, finding delight in God, in God, in, in chapter 111, we see him seeking God's face here in verse 4, we see him revering God's name, we see him pursuing his will, we see him acknowledging God's goodness uh, and serving God's people, we see him trusting God's power, we see him confessing God's holiness, we see him sharing God's word, we see him showing God's love, we see him remembering God's generosity and we see him recalling God's faithfulness over and over. We see him obeying God's commands. We see him encouraging God's servants to keep on doing their work. And we see him fully devoted to God. And that is actually what we are praying would actually happen to all of us uh, during this series. And this is what Nehemiah says. He prays. This is what he does first. He gets down on his knees. And when you read the book of Nehemiah, I know that our church is full of mothers, people that work, and they work hard. 
Nehemiah is a man of action. The whole book is him solving problems, getting a lot done. Uh, but what we see him doing, even though he is a, a task-oriented person, we see him actually, first of all, getting what? On his knees. Prayer is not his last resort. When he is done trying everything he can do, prayer is his first resort. Right? Before he does anything, he spends three to five months praying about it. I'm here to say this. To a lot of us here, prayer is action. Prayer is action. Prayer is action, though it looks like it is actually a position of weakness. Some of us scramble every direction when crisis hits and we hear bad news instead of actually going. Have you taken time to pray? He stays and he prays for five months. He goes before God. He's, he goes before God. And, and, I, and so much of our idolatry is that we're seeing, that we're seeing in this moment is us desiring to take power back rather than feeling powerless enough and weak enough to go before God and ask Him to do something about it. To go to Him in prayer. Prayer here is not about Nehemiah having, having or seeking power, but about him acknowledging God's power and sovereignty. He goes down in his knees and he says, God, would you do something about this? God, I don't know. Is there a way in this? Is there a way in this? And we're going to watch him. We're going to watch God make a way. And reminded me of this hymn. By Joseph, Joseph Scriven, it says, Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And so we see Nehemiah praying for several months for guidance and clarity. We see him asking for the right, uh, right timing to approach the king. He never went immediately when he heard bad news. He goes down. He is actually what we would see, what we would say, a Mary and a Martha combined in both. Right? He sits at the feet of God and begs him to make, make a way, but we're going to see him muttering this situation all the way through. But he does this. We see now a good marriage of like, yes, serve the Lord with all your strength, but that shouldn't be the place where, where you get your strength. And it means where you get you truly your strength is in sitting at the feet of Jesus and getting to know him and who he is and the power of his resurrection. And if you immerse yourself in who God is and what he has done, if God then is for you. Who can be against you? That's what this book does too. That you get to see him getting, going over and over to God. So he turns instinctively to God. So he was committed to prayer. We see him going to God 
And you and I should strive to be committed to going to God. What is it that troubles you and I in the rebuilding? Because that's what God is doing. The sanctification process, the, the sanctification, the process of God making you and I more and more like Jesus is war. You and I are going to face opposition from the world, from the world within our flesh. And then we're going to face, uh, we're going to face temptations and trials. We're going to face trials from fallen people all around us. But the question is this, who are you telling about it? We should be people that are committed to prayer. And in fact, someone actually, one theologian said, worry is actually praying to yourself. Telling yourself all about your own problems. And But you don't have power to solve all those things. But you should take it to the Lord in prayer. And we see him actually genuine. He is genuine in prayer as well. He sits down. He weeps. He allows the brokenness of the situation to invade him. And we see him praying. We see him being sacrificial in prayer. Fasting and praying for five months. And praying over and over. He moaned. And he fasted. And he prayed. He allowed all these things. And we see these things even in Jesus as well. We see Jesus standing over Jerusalem in Luke 9:10 and weeping. And he says, I really wanted to hold you and put you under the shelter of my wings like a mother hen will do to her, her, her little chicks. And Jesus mourning over the city. And we see even a picture of, of persistent prayer. And he's like, for some days, over and over and over, he prayed day and night, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. He goes and he, he prayer here, what, what it does, it confesses our total reliance upon God and, and exercises like our personal faith and demonstrates even our love for others. One of the most comforting things that I receive a lot of times when I'm wrestling with a million things here in the church and, and wrestling with a lot of personal things and, and a lot of things, a lot of times, like I'm telling you, getting a message from someone who says, I'm praying for you and you know they're definitely praying for you, man, for me, there's nothing better than that. There's nothing better because you know what? Because they are taking me from my puny little position and my powerless, my own feeble little muscles. And, and yes, I'm watching brokenness and all those things, but they are taking me and they're committing me to the throne room of heaven, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has nothing is impossible with him. And so I'm just like in building his church, are you taking your children and the conditions of their souls? And are you concerned? Have you been broken about that? And the fact that if they do not confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and you can't make them confess that. It is only Jesus who can resurrect their hearts. Are you concerned about that? And are you concerned about that? So take it to the Lord in prayer. He who resurrected Jesus from the dead can do the impossible. He can take a rebellious child and turn them into a child of God. What about your marriage? Are your words enough? Are, are you going to keep on launching missiles across the, 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 the bed? Are you, gonna, are you done with that? Are you weak enough yet? 
Go to the Lord. Only Jesus who is on the throne of your wife's heart can change her heart. Only Jesus who is on the throne of your husband. No, if you berate him or berate her and do all that, those are not, they cannot change anybody. What about people around you? Does drug addiction in this community? Does orphan care? Does orphans all around? Does foster care break your heart? In January, just like we served more families, like we had a high case of families we served through dwell orphan care, the board, the, 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 the organization, I said, does that break your heart? What's driving parents to neglect their children and run towards drugs? It is the fact that they're looking for a savior. They're looking for only the one that can satisfy them. And they're broken. But can we just be able to actually put a stake down as a church and say, not on our watch. Not on our watch, children are going to thrive in this community. Not on our watch, we're going to see Jesus do far much more and beyond what we could ever imagine. And that only comes if we, if we go down and we're, we're in prayer. We are encouraged by prayer. Prayer is one of the most encouraging things because like when you kneel down and you truly take it and you throw, you cast your cares on Jesus, the King of Kings, the one who can do something about it. Listen, and you walk away from there, you walk away from there saying, I can't do anything about it, but I know one who can. Right? And he was confident in prayer. He prayed to the God of heaven. And in verse 5, next week we're going to see, he starts and he says, Oh God of heaven. Oh God of heaven. And this is just a brilliant expression of the universal supremacy of the only true God. This is the very same posture Jesus takes when he's looking at a grave of his friend Lazarus, and he bursts with compassion. And when he bursts with compassion, he falls down on his knee and he weeps. He meets his weeping friends with tears, but he meets his weeping friends with truth as well. And he says, I, looking at the world he had created, where Shalom had been disturbed, and where sin had caused its greatest vandalism, it's at the graveyard. He kneels down and he weeps, not only just for Lazarus, for just the, what death has done. And but from there, he rises up, resolved to climb on that cross, to give death its once and final notice. It is finished. And to climb off that cross, lifeless, being put in a tomb, being buried, and where everything that troubles us had been buried with him, 
His compassion and His mercy and His grace caused the Son of God, the jewel of heaven, to be put, to, 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 to suffer on our behalf, to be put in the grave. But thank God our story and, and the story of the church doesn't end there. Our story and the story of the church ends on, on, on that third day. On that third day, there was an arising. Jesus rose from the dead and He was triumphant over death, hell, and the grave and everything that is against you and I and everything that comes and becomes an adversity towards you becoming more and more like Jesus. And on that third day, He rose again and He ascended on high. And today, we worship none other than the sovereign Lord. And that's why in Acts chapter 4, when the disciples had been, had been, had been persecuted, they bow before God and they start. What do they start their prayer with sovereign Lord Despotus, the one who rules and reigns and he is the one who is for us and let him be the one who spur us to run towards him in the face of adversity to begin to have compassion but not only that let him empower our prayers day and night amen pray with me Father, we come before you and we thank you. God, on this day we celebrate your faithfulness. We celebrate your goodness. We celebrate that we have a ruling and reigning king. who rules and reigns even over all the kings. It's amazing to see Nehemiah doesn't go to the king who is sovereign or who is ruling on earth, but he runs to you who is ruling over the universe. Would you help us, Lord? Show us every other area that we run to first before we run to you and restore our trust in you. Help us to be a people who are rooted and grounded and established in you, God. On you, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Father, I pray even for those that are here today. Maybe their lives have been characterized by trying to fight their own battles with the sin that has become like a virus in their lives. But thank you that, Lord, you say that sin shall not have dominion over us. And so would you empower them to reach out and to trust in you and to stop being the hero of their stories and to let you, the King of Kings, to be their hero. For the rest of us, Lord, would you help us? Would you massage this truth into every area where we need to lift up our eyes to you, the author and the finisher of our faith, who rules and reigns. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. 
We hope God meets you where you are and doesn't leave you, but changes you through the work of His Son. For additional information, please visit citychurchpa.org.